You know, over the, the past several weeks, and this has actually been an extended thing for me, uh, I've been doing a lot of reading and listening, uh, studying on issues related to the LGBTQIA plus agenda. Yeah, you should be proud of me. I got that acronym out in the right order. Um, in all seriousness, it's, it's a real issue in our, in our world today. And uh, it's a real issue um, related to um, many other underlying issues, things like uh, sexual identity, gender identity as it's come to be known, um, homosexuality, how does it relate to marriage, how does it relate in our lives. Um, it, it's, a, it's a hard topic to read on, honestly. But um, as I was reading, I came across an article uh, by Abigail Favillet, and um, it's called The Confession of a Feminist Heretic. Okay, let me just tell you, as soon as I read that, I'm like, i got to read this article. Um, this ought to be interesting. And uh, as I read it, it was, it was very powerful as she was sharing her life story. Uh, she grew up in an uh, evangelical, conservative culture. Uh, as she went on to college, she became a self-described postmodern feminist, and then uh, most recently, in the last 10 years or so, she actually converted to Catholicism. And uh, my purpose this morning isn't to walk through her life and question how she got where she got. What really stood out to me as I read the article is something that she self-described. She calls this the cardinal virtues of feminism. Uh, This is what she said. The, The four cardinal virtues are autonomy, self-sufficiency, equality, and empowerment. Autonomy, self-sufficiency, equality, and empowerment. And she goes on to say, as she self-describes her own commitment to what she calls, again, postmodern feminism, she said, it's very self-centric, very much concerned with my identity, my power, my potential. Now, I realize I could say that, and it sounds like I'm setting up a sermon to take on feminism and all its ills and the dangers and what could go on, and and actually, that's not my purpose. What stood out to me is that she listed these cardinal virtues of autonomy, self-sufficiency, equality, and empowerment. And I actually think she hit something right on the head, but it's not just about feminism, You see, I think what she hit on the head is any philosophy built around the individual as supreme. I mean, take the word feminism out of it. Just hear the four cardinal virtues, autonomy, self-sufficiency, equality, empowerment. This is the proclamation of the self-centric ideal. The reality is you could take out feminism, and I could put, up, put in another term. I, I could say, well, we're going to talk about what we might call, and I'll make up a word, maleism or masculinism. And I would tell you these same cardinal virtues would come out. Autonomy, self-sufficiency, equality, and empowerment. You know, today my purpose is not to address misogyny, which is understood from the two Greek words it comes from, the hatred of women, right? 
This isn't a sermon to, to make men feel bad that they hate women. If you do, if you hate women, you're in sin. You'll figure that out through the sermon, but that's not the primary purpose. Okay? By the way, ladies, if you hate men, you're in sin as well. And we can, you know, we can go back and talk about that. Yeah. It's the only amen I'm going to get all day. Brother, I'm going to pray for you. Lunch will not go well. So... <laughs> Rather, what I want, want us to do is look at Ephesians 5, 25 through 33. And I want, us, I want us to really look at how Paul is addressing men specifically in the context of marriage. See, there's an overarching premise that, that really I have as I go into this. And it's this, and I've expressed it in various ways going into this week. Our marriages must be grounded in the gospel because they are designed to display the gospel. Okay. If we are going to have distinctly Christian marriages, they must be grounded in the gospel because they are designed to display the gospel. And today, what I'm specifically targeting, the specific application that Paul is addressing here, is that husbands are to love their wives in such a way that it does two things. One is that their wives would experience and grow in their belief and embracing of the gospel. You know, ladies, that, you should hear that and you should say, that is how my husband should be loving me. That it actually compels me to experience the gospel and grow in it. It's not just talk, Right? Even this morning as I prayed with some of the men before our service, one of the prayers was that the gospel would not just be something we say, that we would actually put feet to the gospel. And men, that is what we have to do in our marriages if they are going to be distinctly Christian marriages. Our wives should experience the gospel by the way we relate to them. And ladies, that should be your expectation and it should also be the expectation that you grow in the gospel. Secondly, that they should love their lives in such a way that their marriages display the gospel, which is the glorious union between Christ and the church. That's what's on display. You see, what I'm, what I'm doing this morning is trying to argue against a couple of things at the extremes, at the edges. One is, I want to argue against patriarchalism. That is that men are exalted to a point that they must be obeyed regardless of their self-centeredness or their sin. I mean, if, if you believe what the gospel teaches is your wife should just do what they're told and you will tell them what to do, you are in sin, plain and simple. That's not what the gospel teaches, and that's what we see out of, this is what I'm going to argue this morning out of this passage. That doesn't mean you aren't supposed to lead, but there is a way you are supposed to lead, and there is a way you're not supposed to. And if you think by the very fact that you have an XY chromosome, that somehow puts you in a position to declare what your wife should do, and she should just do it, you don't understand the gospel. Secondly, I'm arguing against what is, is commonly known in our modern world, and I, is egalitarianism. Now, I want to use this carefully because there are some that are egalitarian in their 
in their practices and beliefs that would not embrace the far edges of egalitarianism. Now, now what is that word? It's a big word. But it, what it basically means is that there is no honoring the differentiation of design of how men and women are to live within the context of marriage. There are some that would say that because of the way things work now, there should be no differentiation between the way men and women relate in, in responsibilities in the marriage. I don't think that's what the gospel teaches either. Not because one is better or more important than the other. It's actually a betrayal of our belief of worth. You see, there are some that think, well, there's a differentiation, and, and, I, and I'm going to argue from what Paul has written, that men are supposed to take a headship, a leadership in the marriage. But it betrays what has become of it and what we believe about it. Do you realize that our, our Lord had to confront this in his own disciples? They come, I mean, I've referenced it before, that, you know, James and John, their mother comes up. Hey, I want my sons to be at your right hand in the kingdom. And our Lord has to say, you've completely misunderstood what greatness in the, in the kingdom of God is. It is not about who's in charge. It's about who serves. And this is why as we look at this passage, we can't forget Ephesians 5.21, where it says we are to submit to one another. Now, some have taken that to be mutual submission to the point of there is no hierarchy or responsibility of leadership anywhere. I don't think that's what Paul does, because Paul immediately launches into wives submit to your husbands. He's trying to bring clarity what he means by that. But we also need to see, because a lot of times we get stuck there, we need to see that he also says, and now husbands, let me tell you what mutual submission to your wife looks like. It looks like this is how you lead. You know, one of the things we talk in our elder body about is that we lead from the bottom. Now, I realize that can be an idealistic statement. In other words, it could just be idealism, right? But really what we want to do is actually lead through service and so that people would know that our heart is not just to be exalted because we're called elders. It's literally because we are here as under shepherds of our Lord, who we have a responsibility to, to shepherd well. That means we will do things that may be, as it were, hard and dirty. They may not be comfortable, but if they are for the good of the body and they are good of those that are under our shepherding care in their lives, we will do those things. Not for our comfort, but for the good of the body of Christ. Because that's what we're called to. And, and what I'm saying is, men, in our marriages, that's what we're called to. My basic argument is going to fall along those lines this morning. And I want you to see there are two things that are listed that Paul calls out on how we are to love our wives. Two ways that we are to love our wives. And I think they're clearly stated here in Ephesians 5.25 and 28. Number one, we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You see that in verse 25. Husband, love your wives. There's the imperative. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. We're going to come back to that. Secondly, we are to love our wives also as their own body. As if they are our own body. Because they are. 
Now, I'm not going to get to this part this week, but next week we're going to look at the end of this passage where this mystery gets revealed to us about Genesis 2.24 and how that was all about Christ and his church, not merely about the union, the one flesh union of man and woman. But what we need to realize is that we are to love our wives as Christ loved the church and love them as our own body. In verse 28, it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. So if we walk out of here this morning, men, and ladies, as you look, the way we as Christian husbands are to love you is we are to love you the same way in likeness as Christ loves the church. And we are to love you as if you are our own body, specifically because you are. There's a lot of applications out of here I could go on all morning. But there's a reason why we would never abuse our wives. That is not how Christ treated his church, nor is that how you treat your own body. In scriptures, because when we do that, we bring disrepute, and we actually distort the gospel. How would you like to stand in front of your Lord and say, forgive me, Lord, because the way I live my marriage, I have distorted the gospel, and others could not see it as they were supposed to and come to Christ. I do not want that to be my testimony before my Lord. So how did Christ love the church? That first one, he says, Christ, we are to love, love our wives as Christ loved the church. Well, he's clear. What did he do? Look at verse 25. He gave himself up for her. He, he makes it very clear that the manner for how we are to love is, or how we are to love our wives is the same way that Christ loved the church, through self-sacrifice. You know, it's interesting. This same phrase gets used earlier. You may remember it from Ephesians 5.2. We are to walk in love, talking to the entire body of Christ. As Christ loved us and did what? Gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Self-sacrifice, If you can't miss this. If the sovereign of all the universe would condescend to become one of us, and die a shameful death on the cross for his bride, the church. Men, the standard is impossible, but get ready, that's what we're called to. That's exactly what's expected of us. It is not easy. I'm not going to share personal testimony, but if you'd like accounts of how I've screwed it up in my own marriage, my wife is on my left-hand side. You can talk to her after church. Unless she be too kind, talk to my own dad. He's a little more blunt about it. He'll let you know, right? Okay, this is not about perfection, but it is about what we seek. And we must seek in our marriage to love our wives as Christ loved the church. You know, Paul says this again in Galatians. In Galatians 1.4, he says, The Lord Jesus Christ did what? Gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of God our Father. Isn't that interesting? Christ's sacrifice is, to, is tied to the eternal will of the Father. And now our marriages get bound to that. You, you, need, to, you need to give yourself up for your wife. 
because it shows something about the eternal will of God in salvation. Or in 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, in this fleshly fallen body, I live by how? By faith in the Son of God who loved me and did what? Gave himself for me. Do you see a pattern? Or, or Paul writes again in 1 Timothy 2.6 that Jesus is the one who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at which is the testimony given at the proper time. He is a ransom to buy us out of the slave market of sin. I mean, remember, Paul used those words around, but what? You were once slave to sin, you are now to be slaves to righteousness, to Christ Himself. Why? He bought us. Or in Titus 2.14, men, that our, our Lord gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Okay, that part in Titus 2.14, do you hear the echoes? We're going to hear the echoes of that here in Ephesians 5. Guys, we, men, with your wives, you have a very specific assignment. Your assignment, as we will see, is to do what our Lord did for his bride. To redeem from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people of his own possession who are zealous for good works. Men, does your love for your wife compel her to do good works for her Lord? Or does it compel her to cry out and say, why is it this way? Man, this is on us. We must love our wives as Christ loved the church. You see, the husband's love for his wife in marriage is about self-sacrifice, not self-gratification. Let me say that again. It is about self-sacrifice, not about self-gratification. Our model the very pattern we are to follow is what our Lord did. He left his rightful place of majesty with all its comforts and privileges and came down to live among us and be one of us so that he could stand in our stead for our sin and be the sacrifice that we could not make, the eternal sacrifice that's entirely sufficient for our salvation. Notice, he gave up privilege and comfort for us. Gentlemen, that is what we must do in our marriages. Now, let's be honest. Every moment of our marriage is not uncomfortable and miserable. That's not our marriages. But there may come a time in which you have to give up what you want to self-gratify for the betterment of your wife so that she will see and know the gospel and grow in it. Do that. Because this is what we are called to. How often we do things out of our own comfort. Out of finding our own self-gratification. And what we are called to is no. Self-sacrifice. So that the gospel may be experienced by our wives. And that she may grow in it. 
You know, the regulating governing law of how a husband provides leadership is not the law of sin. It is the law of Christ. There's a reason we are called to obey the gospel, all of us, and very specifically, men in our marriages. One of your great assignments, and the primary assignment, I would argue, for you and your marriage, men, if you're a Christian man walking, your primary assignment is to husband in such a way that if your wife does not know Christ, she'd be led to the gospel. And if she does, she would grow in it and experience it through the way you love her. And yeah, that may be in very little things. Sometimes the most loving thing you can do is actually put the dishes in the dishwasher. If you're an overachiever, on the right shelf. Sometimes... The most glorious thing your wife could do is, or see you do is pick up the laundry and God forbid, may it never be, put it in the washing machine and actually use it. Now if you're like me, you have to know that towels take longer to wash. So when you leave the house and you tell your wife they're still in the washer and she looks at you and goes, yes, I learned a lesson. They take a long time to wash. I should have got them in the dryer before I left. Figure it out. Sometimes, guys, it's going to be you step in because the harm that's about to come to your wife, you're going to take the harm instead. Guys, it's little things and it's big things. Unfortunately, in our world, we love to glorify in the big things. But let me just tell you, you know this, marriage is not lived from big moment to big moment. It's lived from day to day. And you must live out the gospel in your marriage. Notice the twofold purpose that he describes of why you love her as Christ loved the church. In 526, he says, first of all, it is to sanctify her. Now, do you hear the echoes of Titus here, 214? To have a, a bride that can be presented holy, right? To sanctify her. There in 26, It says that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. Now the second thing he lists is, there in 27, to present her holy and without blemish. Do you see the twofold purpose? One in verse 26, to sanctify her, and secondly in 27, to present her holy and without blemish. There in 27, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. Now, some have argued over this passage, so there's some disagreement about, what does it mean to wash her in the water of the word, by the word, or through the word, or in the word? What does that mean? I think what Paul is reaching back to is back into the book of Ezekiel. In Ezekiel chapter 16, 1 through 14, I'm going to read this to you. And I want you to see that what Paul is reaching back to is a Jewish marriage ceremony. And it speaks to something about what does it mean to sanctify and to present her holy and blameless. That's what Christ is doing for his bride, the church, and you're supposed to do that for your bride who you've married. In Ezekiel chapter 16, picking up in verse 1, it says, Again, the word of the Lord came to me, son of man, make known to Jerusalem her abominations. Okay, that doesn't start on the greatest foot, right? And say, thus says the Lord God to Jerusalem, 
Your origin and your birth are of the land of the Canaanites. Your father was an Amorite and your mother a Hittite. Okay, summary. You were an unclean people. And as for your birth, on the day you were born, your cord was not cut, nor were you washed with water to cleanse you, nor rubbed with salt, nor wrapped in swaddling clothes. No eye pitied you to do any of these things to you out of compassion for you, but you were cast out on the open field, for you abhorred, and on that day you were born. Okay, you realize what God is describing to the nation of it. So he uses Jerusalem as the capital, right? We do this in our common vernacular. You ever heard us talk about what the White House said? No one believes the White House spoke anything, right? Not the actual building. We understand that represents the administration that's speaking on behalf of the nation. Or they say in Washington, Washington, as in Washington, D.C., is speaking about the representative of the whole U.S. That's how Jerusalem's getting used here. This nation of Israel is like a child who's been cast out to die by open, being openly left to the elements. And then God tells Israel what he has done for her. Verse 6 is, And when I passed by you and saw you wallowing in your blood, I said to you in your blood, Live. I said to you in your blood, Live. I made you flourish like a plant of the field, and you grew up and became tall and arrived at full adornment. Your breasts were formed, your hair had grown, yet you were naked and bare. God says, you were like a child who could not care for themselves, left to die. I saw you, and you didn't choose me. I chose you. And I saved you. But now we get to the second part. So he's established that this is a loving relationship that God chose to have with the nation of Israel. Now, hear the words that really come to bear here in Ephesians 5. In verse 8, he says, When I passed by you again and saw you, behold, you were at the age for love. What we would say at marriageable age. And I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. For those of you who are familiar with the book of Ruth, you may remember Boaz does this to Ruth. It was a sign that I am here to protect you and I will become the one who redeems you. And Boaz was communicating through a physical act to Ruth, I will become your kinsman redeemer. God is communicating to the nation of Israel, I am the one that will redeem you. He said, and he goes on, I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, declares the Lord God, and you became mine. Not like all the other nations. Israel became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed off your blood from you and anointed you with oil. This is what's known as a marital cleansing act. In fact, this act became so well known in Jewish marriage, it actually became known in marriage as the act of sanctification. Sound familiar as a word that we're supposed to men sanctify our wives? See, a lot of times we think about sanctification in a progressive sense. And that's the, one of the ways we can think about it, right? We tend to talk about our salvation. We come to Christ. We place our faith in him alone. We trust him alone for our salvation. And that justifies us. It declares us righteous before God. Not because we're righteous, but because the one we are bound to, our marital husband, Christ, is righteous before God. And we stand in his stead, 
or he stands in our stead and we stand in, in him, we're actually for God. And then we talk about, then comes what follows is we do good works because we are being sanctified. We're growing more and more like Christ. But there's another way that sanctification can be used, and it's used in the Old Testament. You would sanctify instruments in the temple, which meant you dedicated them to the use of God. And, and what, what's being described here in Ezekiel is God saying, I sanctified you. So you be dedicated to God. And then he goes on in verse 10, I clothed you also with embroidered clothes and shod you with fine leather. I wrapped you in fine linen and I covered you with silk and I adorned you with ornaments and put bracelets on your wrist and, and a chain on your neck. I put a ring on your nose and earrings in your ears and a beautiful crown on your head. Thus you were adorned with gold and silver, and your clothing was of fine linen and silk and embroidered cloth. You ate fine flour and honey and oil. You grew exceedingly beautiful and advanced to royalty. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord God. This passage is what I believe Paul had in mind as he describes, men, what are we supposed to be doing with our wives? We are supposed to be setting them to the purpose of being dedicated to God. Our love for them should be intentionally directed so that they know they are set out, so they would be, be set out for the purpose of God, dedicated to him. We can't make that choice for them like God could for Israel, but you know what we can do? We can love them in such a way we can show them we want our wives to live for the glory of God. That's what it means to sanctify them. You aren't saving them like Christ saved the church. That's not what's going on. You are going to do what Christ did, which is I am looking at my wife and saying, I want you dedicated to the purposes of God. And I am going to work also in your life so that you grow in holiness and be blameless, so that your renown would glorify our God. Imagine, isn't it nice when your spouse, husband or wife, and someone says, hey, I just want to share with you how God used them in my life so that I would know more of God, I would know the gospel, or I would glorify him. That is just a sweetness to experience, isn't it? Man, we want to love our wives in such a way that others come to us and say, not about you, men, but about your wife. Your wife walks with God. And you could say genuinely in your heart, yes, I want to love her in that way so that she will walk with God. You see, the husband is love his wife with a purpose, one, for his wife to be dedicated to Christ. That's the sanctifying of his wife. Love your wife in such a way that she would be dedicated to Christ. Don't love her in such a way that she would want to not be dedicated to Christ. If she wants to spurn Christ because of your love, that says something about you're not doing it right. Secondly, she should, you want to love your wife in such a way that it brings glory to him through her life. You see that's what was going on in Ezekiel, right? Ezekiel, the, ver the last verse in verse 16, or chapter 16, 14. And your renown went forth among the nations because of your beauty, for it was perfect through the splendor that I had bestowed on you, declares the Lord. 
she's going to bring glory to God because through her life, she shows his splendor and his glory. Love her that way. Love her so that her life shows the glory of God. That's how we're supposed to love. You want to talk about what your submission to your wife looks like in marriage? It doesn't take you out of the leadership position. It doesn't take you out of the responsibility to lead in a godly way. In fact, it demands even more deeply of you that you must lead in godliness so that the gospel would see. Your wife should be the one who comes back and says, you know what I experienced in my husband's love? I experienced the very love of Christ, and it exalts Christ, and that's why I want Christ more. If one who is sinful that follows Christ can love me this way, how much greater can my Lord, who is without sin, love me that way? Men, we should be the lesser argument. We are the lesser because our imperfect love shows the greater, the perfect love of our Lord. This is the call of the gospel upon us in our marriage. Then notice, secondly, the, the second thing we are to love our wife, the, the way we are to do this, the manner is you'll see that phrase, in the same way. In the same way. Love your wife as your own body. In the same way. In the same way that Christ loved the church, love your wife. How did he love, her? How did he love the church? As his own body. How are we to love our wives? As our own body. Notice verse, I'm just going to read 29 or 28 through 30. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. I'm going to come back to that in a second. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Okay, look. Look at verse 29. How do you love your wife just in the same way that Christ loved. What does it feel like? The way it feels to your wife is you are nourishing her and cherishing her. That's how it should feel. Nourished. I feel, I feel, you know how some people just give you energy? You ever been around those people? Now, most of them nowadays, okay, my birthday was on, on uh, Friday. And um, so... I can still check the, the 40 to 49 box. We won't talk about it next year. But um, it's hard being this age. I'm just, you know, I'm, I'm sorry, that's a digression. But you ever been around, for me, it's the little kids. You ever, we're all, you ever watch them, they're just, they're going, we're all going, if I just had that much energy, you know. And the mother of that small child, you know what they're saying? Take all you want, right? right? But you ever been around other people like adults? You know, they're usually the ones that have that positive orientation, and they're like, we can do this. And they just kind of, you just feel energetic. Like, yeah, we can do this. And you realize there is no way we're going to run across Marbach and not get hit by a car. But we can do this, right? You ever, those kind of people, they just give you energy. Guys, your wife should go, my husband loves me in such a way that I actually feel energized, nourished, cared for, so that I can walk in this life, even though it's broken and hard and sinful that guy, the one I married, you know what he does for me? In the face of all this, he just, he, he wells up in me to know, follow Christ. Because even in the midst of all this, we can do that. 
But notice how he says that we should love our wives as our own bodies. He, loves, he who loves his wife loves himself. I want you to understand that the husband has loved his wife not with a selfish purpose, but a selfless purpose. That is the glory of Christ. That phrase where it says, he who loves his wife loves himself, it's not like I'm being selfish in the sense of self-centeredness. But I am being selfish in the sense of, of self-interest. What I mean by that is, I have self-interest in loving my wife in such a way because we are one flesh. And she's my body. And if I don't care for her, what's going to happen? The body is going to be neglected and it's going to be malnourished. It's going to feel uncherished. You remember last week as I was preaching, what this passage does, when you look at really going back higher into, into 522 all the way down to, to 532, when you look at this, what it is doing to marriage in that cultural context is flipping it on its head in a very metaphorical way. You may remember that the picture was that the body was supposed to protect the head because the head was so important. If you lost the head, you lost it all. And Paul is saying, nope, you got it backwards. What our Lord showed us is the head protects the body because this is how God shows the gloriousness of his grace. Men, love your wives like that. That they would see in you a revelation of the gospel. That they would see in your marriage a revelation of the gospel. I'm not here for my own selfishness. I'm not here to get self-gratification for my wife. I'm not here so she can make my, my life easier. I'm here because I want my wife to experience the gospel. I mean, this is the one you love more than any other. We, we told this to our kids growing, as they grew up. We used to tell them, we love each other more than we love you. Oh, ooh, I don't know if you can say that in this modern age. The answer is, bluntly, we chose each other. You guys just showed up. God gave them to you. So you were the hard assignment. We had to do what we got, okay? The reality is, our children understood what we meant. They had to know that our love for one another was so deep that we would love our spouse even more than the bond of a child. Our children know we love them deeply. But you know one of the ways we, they know we love them deeply? Because we love each other deeply. You realize one of the ways your children will see the gospel is how, gentlemen, you treat your wife. Love her as Christ loves the church. See the revelation is, see the reversal that the gospel does to human marriage. The head will sacrifice itself for the body. Men, we will sacrifice ourselves, not just our life, but our very desires for our wife, if that's what it takes, so that they will be sanctified and become holy and blameless in Christ. So husbands, we are to love our wives so that our marriages display the gospel 
that they display the glorious union between Christ and the church. And this is imperative because we all need to understand our Christian marriages must be grounded in the gospel because they are designed to display the gospel itself for the glory of God. Father, I thank you for Paul writing to us. Father, that he wrote to the Ephesians and that the Holy Spirit, in, in working through Paul, that you wrote to us in written words so that we would, we would understand the gospel. And Father, that it would become the means by which you would save your people. God, help us in our marriages. Father, I pray for the men here. If they do not know Christ, God, may they see the gloriousness of what it means to place their faith in Christ alone for their salvation and then to live in their marriages for the glory of Christ. Father, for those that do, may we rightly feel the condemnation of our own sin where we have not lived in godly ways with our spouses. Father, call us to be men that seek to self-sacrifice so that our wives would experience the gospel and grow in it. That our children would see it and be drawn to Christ. And that the world around us would be befuddled by the fact that there are men who willingly will give up their lives, their desires, their weekends, their time, their comfort, their own self-gratification so that their wives would flourish in the gospel to know Christ and grow in him. God, I pray may our church be a body known for its deep love in our marriages that defies the expectations of this world for self-gratification. And Father, it shows that we live for God-glorification. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the Holy Spirit. Amen.